You may be seated. I'm sorry. As I mentioned, uh, JT and Kristen are about to have a baby, and Margot Mandrillo and Pete just had a little penny. And, and many times when young couples that are having babies have babies, the, the emotion, the feelings they have are, I am not ready for this. I am not prepared for this. I don't have the ability to do this. And I'm here today to tell you that is a correct assessment of the situation. Um, having had two children of my own um, uh, with my lovely wife, I, we can tell you for sure that you are in, there's no prep class you can take. You can read what to expect when you're expecting over and over again, and you're still not going to be ready for what you're about to experience. The highs, the lows, and everything in between is just amazing. But there is no question that along the way you say, I am not qualified. That is certainly the case when they're teens, too. And in some ways, the game changes, and you find yourself uh, recognizing that as you were unequipped to deal with them as infants, you're unequipped to deal with them as strong-willed, almost adults. I ironically, last week, taught and blogged about the value of suffering and enduring hardship as discipline. In fact, in last Sunday's message, I used an analogy about how a loving father doesn't mind us calling on him, just as I wouldn't mind my son calling when he's in trouble. As fate would have it, this past week, my son called me at 1.30 a.m. to report that he'd been in a car accident for the second time that day. Let me say that again, because I thought it would get a different response altogether. I got a call from my son at 1.30 in the morning telling me he'd been in an accident for the second time that day. I got two I've been in an accident calls in a single 12-hour period. Well, if, when I preach a sermon, I'm going to have to endure a heaping portion of that which I address in my message the week before. I'm, I've decided I'm going to have to be very careful about what I say. Accordingly, I was going to title today's message... The Seduction of Success, Solomon's Sin and Fall, but I think now a better title would be How a Pastor Can Manage Solomon's Superior Success, Great Wealth and Fame. So (laughs) that's the direction we're going today. Uh, Kid, today we conclude uh, a fall series on the heroes of the Old Testament. And it has been my overall hope that in this series we have highlighted a single characteristic, and it may be nothing new for three years. We've been banging this drum because it is really the reason that we felt a compulsion to start a church. The characteristic is that of divine grace, which was evident from the beginning of the Bible and not just in the New Testament. Grace, getting what we do not deserve. The religionized definition is uh, unmerited favor. And that just sounds so religious. It's just easier for me to understand it in terms of we are getting things that we don't deserve. We're being lavished and loved upon in ways that are striking to us because just as we would say, I'm not ready for this experience of parenting, we'll never, and I repeat with a capital N-E-V-E-R, never be in a place, if you're going to be honest, and we know what's true about our hearts, we are never going to be in a place where we go, 
you know what? I deserve what I'm experiencing as a Christian. The blessing I'm experiencing, it's really because I've been doing a really good job as a believer. If you are ever in a place where you think you're thinking that, let alone you ever get to a place where you might actually say that, oh, my friend, pride comes before the fall and some tough, tough sledding is ahead for you. We will always be in a place where we do not deserve that which we are going to get and that which we are blessed with. And this is going to be the case as we look at our final hero, quote-unquote, hero of the Old Testament. We look at a guy like Solomon, the king, the wisest man who ever lived, who started off his reign as king with such great intentions and initial fervor for the glory of God. He built the Jerusalem temple. And I got to tell you, as a minister, the idea of building a building, that's kind of the ultimate experience if you're a pastor. You have a building, and he builds the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. Solomon is kicking it. He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. He composed over 1,000 songs. He was the author of three of the books of inspired scripture, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And he seemed, according to everything we know in the text, to have done it all for the glory of God. So, how does the wisest man who ever lived have such a tragic downfall where he begins to actually worship foreign gods and ultimately this type of religious syncretism, this worship of multiple gods led to the division of the kingdom and its ultimate destruction? How does someone go from the heights of working for the glory of the one true God to the all-consuming promotion of his own agenda and the worship of false gods? I think all of us could ask that question of ourselves. How do we go from initially being really excited about our walk with God and then as we progress in our faith seem to lose that, that passion, that love? It was something that was recorded in the book of Revelation, I won't go into it today, but the, 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 the condemnation, the admonition to the church in Ephesus was that they had lost their first love. There's something that is missing in our passion for Christ, and I understand this. I get this. I've been a Christian a little over three decades, and I've had peaks and valleys in my enthusiasm for my relationship with God, but as I look back at the valleys, while important parts of my growth, while as I talked about in the last week, and I'm not going to talk about today because I'll have another bad week. I'm just kidding. But at the same time, you know, I, uh, as I talked about last week, they are, they are greenhouses for growth spiritually, the difficult times in life. But I can also look back and see that many of the times when I was arrested by God in difficulty, where he was keeping me from straying, he pointed out to me that there were a couple of characteristics that had become part of my life. In other words, it isn't random that Solomon abandoned his faith and began to sow seeds of destruction into his life. There's some very common themes, and perhaps you can resonate with them. And so as we look at Solomon's life, I jokingly said I wanted to call this sermon uh, the seduction of success, but in many ways, that is exactly what has gone on. It's exactly what happens with all of us. In our abundance, we are tempted to think we can do this on our own. So I want to ask this question and, and propose two answers from our passage today. How is it that we can avoid this same seduction? 
And the first one I will point out in terms of why Solomon was tragically led astray, the first cue that we have about Solomon's fall is that Solomon forgot God's gifts. So this would be my first point today of two. Solomon forgot God's gifts. Let me read the passage to you again, 1 Corinthians 10, or at least verses 23 through 25. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all of the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Don't know about you, but I've never gotten a weapon as a Christmas gift. <laughs> find that a little odd that they'd say, hey, I have a weapon for you. At the same time, there are a couple of cues in verses 23, 24, and 25. One, King Solomon was greater in riches. After all the kings in the earth, the whole earth sought an audience with Solomon. And hear this, to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. So when they came, they were coming for a wisdom. And initially, Solomon knew that wisdom was a gift from God. And somewhere along the line, like all of us might, Solomon has forgotten that that which was given to him was given to him by God's kindness, by his unmerited favor, by the grace of God. I'll read a couple of passages because I'll show you Solomon's privileged position. In 1 Kings 3, 9 through 12, this was what Solomon asked the Lord for. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. So in 1 Kings 3, 9, Solomon is admitting, I do not have the ability to do this. I am unqualified to do this. This is an honest and truthful assessment. And the Lord responds graciously, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. And we continue with 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 through 30. It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand of the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the east, greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. People were coming around to hear Solomon, and somewhere along the line, Solomon forgot that the reason they were coming was to hear the wisdom God gave him and not his own isn't it easy just to forget? I was in youth ministry and at a, at a super-duper affluent church. And at this super-duper affluent church, which was in the wealthiest section of our city, uh, I oftentimes would come across parents who had extraordinary resources. And I saw a considerable difference in the way their kids perceived the ministry staff of the church and the way kids from working-class families saw us. The working-class families were, in some ways, like gra- grateful for the opportunity to participate in something as grand as our, 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 the church I was a part of was just such a neat thing. I mean, we had a great pastor, and they had wonderful programs for youth and children. And, but people from wealthier families kind of felt like they paid for it, and they kind of deserved it. We're the ones supporting this thing. 
I mean, sure, you work for us. We actually had a goofy kid who was just repeating what his parents said, say that to some of our children's workers. Hey, I pay your salary. He didn't come up with that on his own. Mom and dad and their wealth had communicated that to him, and he was just parroting what they said. But this is how it goes for all of us. We get something, we forget, we get this amazing promotion at work. And in some ways, we might be able to say, you know what, I'm better than the other people that were applying for this promotion. And we begin to take pride in ourselves, not recognizing that there's more to it than just your promotion. In the Psalms, King Solomon actually wrote uh, this psalm, Psalm 127, 1 through 2, "'Unless the Lord builds the house, its labors build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain.'" In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. So in his own Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, Solomon recognizes that unless the Lord's involved with something, it isn't going to happen, regardless of what it looks like on the surface. You and I are always dependent on God's grace. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to work hard. It doesn't mean you weren't supposed to go to graduate school or, or excel at your profession in a way that that separates you from your peers. But you have to, like Solomon, step back and say, even the gifts that I've been given to do all those things are a gift of God's grace. Solomon was born the son of the king. You think he had an advantage or two? You think his schooling was better than his contemporaries? I'm pretty sure he had good schooling. He was not only the son of the king, he was the favored son of the king. He wasn't the oldest, but for one reason or another, He had his father's heart, and his father promoted him above his older brothers to the place of being the king. We all attribute it to God. God directed David to say, Solomon will be the king forever. Fine. The point is is that Solomon has to remember it wasn't because he was the best kid. It wasn't because he was the oldest and in line of succession. It was because God graciously gave him this role. All through his life, including the supernatural gift of wisdom, Solomon was given this privilege. And you and I would have to say the same thing. You may feel like you've picked yourself up from a working class background to get where you are today, but I can tell you, you didn't give yourself the intellect that you have. There are people born with far less upstairs than you have as a mere gift from God. You may hone your gifts. You may feel like you've done some good work to make it this far. But understand something. Even the money you had to go to school, to learn more, to hone those gifts is a gift from God. Anywhere you trace it, let alone our life, our breath, our entire being, we exist by the grace of God. I had a son getting two car accidents in one day. You don't think angels are watching out for my little boy? Who's not a little boy anymore, unfortunately. I really believe that one of the things that was going on in Solomon's life is he just simply forgetting, and his success seduces him into thinking that he could continue without God's miraculous power. You know, it's easy to forget all God's done, and what that does, I've seen in my own life, it makes us ungrateful, it makes us proud, and the combination of ingratitude and pride deceives us into thinking that we become successful on our own. Then we end up imagining that we can do no wrong. In the end, we depend on our own strength and ultimately on our own wisdom. And isn't that ironic? Because his own proverb, uh, the, the, 
uh, I'm sorry, in his own proverb, uh, King Solomon said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. While King David, his father, had his faults, one thing that David was clearly quick to do, according to Psalm 51, is let it all hang out when he was caught. In other words, he had enough of a view of the grace and mercy of God that when he was confronted about his sin, David was very quick to repent. This cannot be said for Solomon. On numerous occasions, people came to him and said, you're going astray, and Solomon refused to listen. We believe that God is merciful and gracious, but even our capacity to respond to that confrontation, to be able to believe that he is gracious and will forgive us, we would contend, in this church anyway, that the scriptures teach that our ability to believe is even a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 says an entire section of scripture, and I, didn't, uh, I commend it to you. I will read Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, and then 8 through 10 and give you just a snapshot of what the New Testament would say about the humility that is a gift from God. Because of his great love for us, the apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we are completely inanimate. We are uninterested, and God starts coming into our world. He comes, and he draws us to himself, and he and he awakens us. And, and yes, sometimes he allows hardship to come to awaken us to the challenges uh, that we are ignoring. Sometimes he wants us to call on him. The scriptures continue in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And then there's just parenthetical about our faith. And this not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Even the ability to repent, the ability to say, I agree with you, God. My behavior, my conduct is displeasing. Help me change. These are gifts from God. Our salvation is a gift and also is believing. And it's so easy. It's so easy to become proud. And this is the concluding verse 9 of Ephesians 2. You're saved by grace through faith. This is a gift from God. It's not from yourself. And it's not by works. So no one can boast. A proud Christian is an oxymoron. It's not possible if you're genuinely a believer, if you're in tune with your own brokenness, to ever forget that God has been the author of everything, including your own faith. And sometimes the difficulties that will come about in our life are drawn in our lives to remind us once again, he is the bestower of great gifts, and Solomon forgot God's gifts. Three Christmases ago, my new friends, John and Brooke, gave Carolyn and I a real treat. Uh, they gave us a, a, a gift certificate to go to Ruth Chris Steakhouse. Now, Carolyn and I operate on a subway budget. All right, now, uh, and I just want you to know, when you go to Ruth Chris, there's a reason you need a gift certificate, because holy mackerel, the prices are unreal, but so is the food. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been, and this was a, a first time and a last time experience for us, uh, but man, it was great. And we sat in this really nice place. It's right on Colorado Boulevard, and we had these amazing steaks, and we're just sitting there thinking, oh man, this is amazing. And we just ate this stuff. And over my shoulder, I hear a family there, and apparently they'd been there before because they were not happy with the food. 
And, and I was sort of shocked and kind of stunned that anybody could be complaining about the food at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. I wanted to turn around and say, you do realize that as bad as that may be, it's better than a salad from Subway. You know, I mean, they, 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 their, their perspective was so twisted. It was like uh, they actually complained about the food at Ruth's Chris. I just, I mean, I'm stunned. But I guess if you're raised with that kind of wealth, that's what you come to expect. And it causes you to be ungrateful. And you think, well, I'm paying for this service. And you forget that God has been the one to give you everything you have. They refer to it in sports circles when somebody gets a coaching job that they didn't deserve or they're arrogant and proud about it in politics. The phraseology is they're born on third base but act like they hit a triple. You and I are called by God in our efforts to stay close to him to remember his kindnesses. His gifts. If you wonder why Prism bangs the grace of God, boom, 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 like a drum, and you think, are we ever going to talk about anything else at this church other than grace? Well, yeah, but we're always going to filter it through God's kindness and the grace of the gospel. It's always going to be about how God has been kinder to us than we deserve because that's what gives us a desire to love him. Solomon forgot God's gifts. Okay, here's the second thing. Not only did Solomon forget God's gifts, Solomon forgot God's word. And this is the real practical application for us. It's how do we go about remembering and being reminded in our broken state that God is the author of all the good things that we have in our life? And the way we do that is by attending to God's word. It's by being in the places where God speaks to us. It could be a home group Bible study or it could be being uh, at church regularly and hearing the worship of God's people and hearing the teaching of God's word. It could be your daily walk through and prayer time and study of scripture. But there is a, a requirement if we're going to see the world correctly to see the world through the grid of God's word. In verse 1 of 1 Kings 11, it says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, his wife, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidon, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. The, the, the operative verse in this section is that the Lord had told them not to do this. While Solomon may have forgotten that God was the author of all these really cool things that he was getting and gave him the wisdom that made him do all the really cool things and enabled him to get all the really cool stuff. Part of the problem was along the way as he enjoyed all that success, he began to look to those things instead of God. And this is what happens when the things we receive as blessings from God become more important to us than God himself. In 1 Kings 3.14, this was the command that that Solomon got on the backside of this receiving his gift of wisdom. The Lord said to Solomon, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as your father David did, I will give you a long life. So he's saying to him, the method, the means by which the good things are going to be coming through and to your life is through your following of my word. Now, I completely resist by just instinct 
the notion that, you know, what we have is the Bible, and the Bible is God's playbook, and if you'll follow God's playbook, your life will be perfect, and everything will work out just right. And I'm on the board of Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the San Gabriel Valley because I love Chris Ricks. He's a great brother. But I got to tell you, there are times when we're passing out the God's game plan Bibles where I start thinking, maybe in some ways the kids are starting to think that I don't necessarily need God. I just got to follow these rules. And if I follow these rules, then everything will be fine for me. And that's just not true. We're not saying that God's, God's word is an instruction manual on how to live life and not have any problems. What God's word is, it is a picture of his character. It is how one of the means by which we discover who he is. And yes, as part of that, the Lord gives decrees and commands to guide us in life, to do things that please him, to do things that are consistent with the way he created us. And Solomon got away from that. D.A. Carson is the, one of the Bible scholars I study regularly in preparation and he, he pointed out that in this section of 1 Kings 11, there's a strand, or actually in 10 and 11, there's a strand of criticism that, that runs through the whole thing. The writer is recognizing that, that Solomon has ignored the commands to kings in Deuteronomy 17. So in one sense, he is praising Solomon's greatness. He's glorifying Solomon, but then he's also criticizing him. And his greatness, Solomon's greatness, is being pointed out that it was achieved by overriding the stipulations of the book of Deuteronomy and in the end just wrought nothing but destruction for him. I mean, what in the world was Solomon thinking that he could have 700 wives and imagine that everything was going to go okay at home? I've got one wife and I mess up so much I can't imagine having 700. You'd constantly be blowing it. In Solomon's case, he's just ignoring what the scriptures told him. Here are the prohibitions for kings from Deuteronomy 17. Kings must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. What was it the scriptures told us today in the passage? That Solomon made silver as, as common as rocks. In other words, <laughs> this is amazing. What is the most common thing you see in Pasadena? Cars, traffic. Imagine if silver was as prominent as cars in our area. There's nothing but traffic around here. This silver was all over the place. Kings must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make people run, return to Egypt to get more of them. Solomon had so many horses, he had to get a, had a storm in an entirely different city. Kings must not take many wives, 700. And this is the understatement of the Bible, or his heart will be led astray. You think? All Jews were forbidden from intermarriage with foreigners from certain lands. And Solomon ignored all of those. Now, why? I real briefly have to tell you that at one level, if you've watched any movies about ancient kingdoms, is sometimes these marriages were political alliances built to secure one's borders, to make, give somebody a sense that I'm not going to be overrun. And presuming that that was his motive instead of just raw animal lust, it's still a sin because he's not looking to God, not trusting God to protect him and provide for him. He's going his own way. He's saying, you know what? I realize you said, don't do these things. But in order for me to feel safe, I've got to do these things. So I'm going to ignore your word to create a peace that I think is tangible as opposed to this supernatural experience of waiting for you. Boy, does that, I mean, does that ring true with your life? It does with me. 
I mean, people steal, whether it's little bits at the office or whether it's little bits at the bank or whatever from the, from the IRS, just withhold a little bit of information from them and keep that extra few hundred dollars and we think, well, this will make me feel secure. But what does God say? You don't have to do that. Trust me. You don't have to cheat here and cheat there. You can be completely honest. You can return money when it's accidentally given to you at the counter of a store. You, you, can, you, don't, have to, you don't have to protect yourself. I will take care of that. You trust my word. Solomon lost sight of what he knew, that unless he depends on God, what he does is not of his eternal significance and it really, in the end, isn't going to glorify God. When Solomon discussed his kingdom in Psalm 72, which is another one of the psalms that he wrote, he says in the first of this verse, Psalm 72, verse 17, of his own kingdom, speaking of himself, may the king endure forever, may may his name endure forever, may it continue as long as the sun all nations will be blessed through him and they, will, and they will call him blessed. So Solomon has this perspective that everything he has has been given to him by God and that the purpose that he has in living his life is that people would be blessed and they would call him be blessed for being the conduit through which all that was coming. And then he goes on to say in verse 18 of Psalm 72, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Solomon had lost sight of God's word. And any of us who've ever had a drift morally can trace at some point that we decided it was time to start avoiding those places where God's word was central to the experience. That's true of church too. And I'm not picking on any of you, and please don't read anything into this because this was prepared long before I knew you'd show up today. But I know from my own experience that the first thing I do when I get into an area of disobedience is I avoid other Christians. Now, I can't avoid you. It's my job. But I have other places where I'm supposed to interact with other believers, other pastors in our network. We have a monthly prayer meeting. If I have some areas of struggle or areas where I'm ignoring the Lord in my life, you know what goes on my schedule first and foremost? That monthly prayer meeting. Don't want to meet with those guys this month. Don't want to hear it. And I know before I was a minister, and well, it's coming up on 20 years, so it's been about two decades since I've been had the luxury of not going to church on Sunday, but I can tell you we will hurt ourselves. We will push ourselves away from God's word because we really don't want to hear it. But God is calling out to us and saying, I want you to trust me. I want you to hear what I have to say. I I want you to know that I love you. Ironically, and uh, this is the thing, and I'll mention it just briefly, and that is whenever we have a problem within the church at large of theological drift, and we live uh, hop, skip, and a jump from Fuller Seminary, which may be one of the hotbeds of evangelical theology drift, one of the things that inevitably is preceded by this by this theological drift away from the the truths of Scripture is a weakening of the authority of Scripture. 
So when people start to say, oh, that's not authoritative in my life, or let me redefine Scripture in such a way that it robs it of its value and robs it of its authority in my life, then they end up in some trouble. I may have shared this story in years past, but this is an absolutely true story. I worked with a young woman um, in, when I was in radio, and uh, Carolyn and I invited her to come to church with us on a number of occasions, and she became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, she confessed uh, to us that she had been having an affair with a man who was a graduate student in the religion department at Florida State University. And I said, that's interesting. He's unmarried, and you're having an affair? And she said, yeah, and he's, he's still married to uh, his wife from New England. And I said, okay. And she said, he told me that the Bible really doesn't, you know, isn't really authoritative on the issues of adultery and all that. And I thought, well, isn't that convenient? And, and, and I can tell you that theologically, he had well before he ever met her had drifted into God's word doesn't hold the authority. I don't have to feel badly when I read don't cheat on your spouse. He'd already made that determination long before he ever met her. See, his belief about the authority of God's word directed his conduct. And so you and I are called by God's grace to trust him, to trust that his grace will fill us and that as the Lord promised Solomon, if we walk in obedience to him, to keep his decrees and commands, that we can expect the benefit, the blessing of God. And it isn't our obedience that produces it. It's this is the means of grace. This is the road you take to get to these blessings. The road is God's gift too. Everything about God's word is there for you and for me to know him, to know what he would like us to do, to trust him. You may have heard this past week of a scandal that's going on in our old hometown, Tallahassee, Florida. The Heisman Trophy candidate, Jameis Winston, is being accused by someone of a sexual assault, and the district attorney in Florida is now determining whether or not they're going to charge him, which will more than likely, if it hasn't already, derail his Heisman campaign and potentially mean that Florida State won't get to a national championship game. And truthfully, if this young woman was assaulted, then, then, then so be it. You know, this poor girl's world has been rocked. But obviously in Seminole Nation, there's all sorts of things going on in terms of discussions about uh, accusations against athletes and whether or not they're always true. More importantly, on a personal level, I have some friends who have little boys, sons, who look up to Jameis Winston, one of my buddies said to me this week, I'm not sure how to deal with this. He's got a young son. He says, Chuck, you know, what am I supposed to tell him? He's in the backyard pretending he's this quarterback who's been accused of rape, and it's on television all the time. How am I supposed to process this? And I remember an experience that we had uh, with a really good friend of ours who was a quarterback at Florida State University, and that was Chris Ricks, who's been to our church before. And when Chris was a student, Nick was, uh, my son was looking up to him as a quarterback at Florida State, and Chris was going through the crutter. I mean, man, being the quarterback of a high-profile football team is nothing to be longed for unless you're longing for stress. And I remember talking very frankly with, and I shared this with my friend, I said, this is an opportunity for you to say, this is what happens with Christian guys who do things they're not supposed to do. This is life. This is reality. 
We don't have to lift. Heroes are not there always for us to go. They've lived perfectly, and if I'll do just as they did, I can live perfectly too. The heroes that God has given us have been given to us to say, they're just like you. They are saved by grace. They are rescued by grace. They are serving me by grace. And yes, you can learn some things from them and from their mistakes. God loves you and I enough to use superstars to serve as examples of how not to live. And he loves you and I enough that he wants us to see that and he wants us to look at these heroes and recognize the beauty of his mercy and his grace. So let's thank God for that this morning, shall we? Father, what a fun time it's been for me to be able to look at the, the mess-ups of you know, our top people, uh, the heroes of our faith. Because so often, like my brothers and sisters here, I would have a very clear sense that I do not deserve that which you have.